You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Um, And this morning, myself and my sister, Verena, are going to be reading our passages both in English and in German. I think there's lots of reasons to do this, but um, I just want to invite us that this is a time for us to recognize and give thanks together that we belong to the global kingdom of our King Jesus Christ, and also that he calls us to go to all people so that all people could hear his gospel in their language and in their culture. Um, So would you follow along with me? And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyrants and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Und er stand auf und ging von dort in das Gebiet von Tyrus. Und er ging in ein Haus und wollte es niemanden wissen lassen und konnte doch nicht verborgen bleiben. Sondern alsbald hörte eine Frau von ihm, deren Töchterlein einen unreinen Geist hatte. Und sie kam und fiel nieder zu seinen Füßen. Die Frau war aber eine Griechin aus Syrophonizien und bat ihn, dass er den Dämon aus ihrer Tochter austreibe. Jesus aber sprach zu ihr, Lass zuvor die Kinder satt werden, denn es ist nicht recht, dass man den Kindern das Brot nehme und werfe es vor die Hunde. Sie antwortete aber und sprach zu ihm, Herr, aber doch essen die Hunde unter dem Tisch von den Brosamen der Kinder? Und er sprach zu ihr, um dieses Wortes willen geh, geh hin, der Dämon ist aus seiner Tochter ausgefahren. Und sie ging hin und ihr Haus und fand das Kind auf dem Bett liegen und der Dämon war ausgefahren. Und als er wieder fortging aus dem Gebiet von Tyrus, kam er durch Sidon und das Galiläische Meer, mitten in das Gebiet der zehn Städte. Und sie brachten zu ihm einen, der taub war und stammelte und bat ihnen, dass er ihm die Hand auflegte. 
Und er nahm ihn aus der Menge beiseite und legte ihm die Finger in die Ohren und spuckte aus und berührte seine Zunge und sah auf zum Himmel und seufzte und sprach zu ihm, Hier Vater, das heißt, tu dich auf. Und sogleich traten seine Ohren auf und die Fesseln seiner Zunge wurden gelöst und er redete richtig. Und er gebot ihnen, sie sollten niemandem sagen, Je mehr er es ihnen aber verbot, desto mehr breiteten sie es aus. Und sie wunderten sich über die Maßen und sprachen, er hat alles wohlgemacht. Die Tauben macht er hören und die Sprachlosen reden. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, this morning's title, uh, the title of this morning's message is Drawing Near. We're talking about really approach. How you approach majesty matters. How you approach majesty matters. Royal protocol isn't really a thing in America for one reason is because we're a democracy. We're not a monarchy. And so we don't typically consider how we're to appropriately approach leaders. We live in a democracy, which means that our philosophy is that authority works for us, right? I put you in office. That was my vote. I'm paying your bills, so you work for me. I don't care if you're mayor, governor, president. I'm, you work for me because we're American. <laughs> But in the few nations that, where there's still a monarchy, uh, there are very specific rules and protocol for approaching a royal figure. And with a number of you know, these, these rules, for instance, there are greetings that are acceptable and not acceptable when you approach your majesty. Uh, there are appropriate rules about when to speak and when you're, you're being spoken to, rules about forming semicircles and bows and curtsies and don't turn your back and don't be the first to leave. And, and, you know, you're supposed to be standing in these situations and sitting in these situations and that sort of thing. And so in 2009, uh, during a presidential visit, visit to, the, to the UK, there was a, a big to-do when, at the time, First Lady Michelle Obama and the Queen of England were caught on camera side-hugging. And if you look at the picture, it's a very consensual side hug. And yet, all of the royal protocol fanatics went nuts. In fact, there were newspaper headings called The Hug Heard Round the World about how royal protocol had been broken. This is not the way that you're supposed to approach the queen and on and on. So the question that we're going to consider today is, how are we to approach Jesus, whom Mark has already described as God's royal son? This is the highest king of heaven. This is the one whom the scriptures describe as having the name above all names. So how are we to approach Jesus? And what I believe this portion of Mark really speaks to is that very question, both in the account of the desperate Syrophoenician woman as well as the deaf man from the Decapolis. And so if you're taking notes, the direction this morning will be quite simple. Two points, approaching Jesus and Jesus approaching. Now, if you think this means you're getting out early, it doesn't. Don't worry, there are subpoints. Approaching Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, and Jesus approaching, how we draw near to Jesus and ultimately how Jesus draws near to us. Let's begin with approaching Jesus. Look with me in verse 24. And from there, he arose And went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
Jesus couldn't be hidden. Now, Michelle and I have lived in Stockton for about 10 years now. And this is a city, as you know, of over 300,000 people, spans across a pretty large landmass. And, and I kid you not, I cannot go anywhere in this city without knowing someone. And that's not a, a claim about popularity. Like, I recognize people. <laughs> so, you know, you go whatever, wherever and you see so-and-so from the kid's school or what's-their-face from the kid's sports team. Anytime we go to Target, I plan on running into at least 10 people from church, right? They're, they're, you just run into people. And so what I've come to find out is that this is really like the biggest small town in the United States. In order to really avoid contact and really trying to avoid knowing someone, you really literally have to go outside of the city. And so you have to imagine with all of the fame, all the popularity of Jesus in a region that is much smaller than ours, with a population that's much smaller than ours, Jesus can't go unnoticed. And so Jesus journeys to a region that the scriptures describe as Tyre and Sidon in an attempt to break away from ministry in Galilee. Now remember, chapters earlier, Jesus told his disciples, hey, let's take a break. Let's get away. But immediately he's met with people and what ends up happening? They're hungry and he feeds the 5,000. They never got their sabbatical. They never got their break. So Jesus again is seeking just a time away. But it shortly becomes clear here that it is not possible to even find that break in Tyre and Sidon. Even in the neighboring region, Mark tells us in verse 24, he could not be hidden. Thanks be to God. We're told that here in the region of Tyre and Sidon, there is a Syrophoenician woman, which means that she's non-Jewish. She's Greek and Greek-speaking. And she has a daughter who is afflicted with an unclean spirit, which we come to find out is a demonic spirit. She's heard of Jesus. She hears that he's drawing near. And so what does she do? She immediately comes to him. And it's this approach of the Syrophoenician woman that I want us to acknowledge here and and consider some things about this approach. The first thing to notice about the approach is her posture. The posture of her approach. She hears of Jesus, and it tells us in verse 25, she came and she fell down at his feet. What is the first thing we read about this woman? She falls down at the feet of Jesus. Her posture before Jesus is one of humility, and it is one of submission. Not a sense of entitlement, which we are so tempted to have when we approach God. Not a sense of Jesus owes her anything. Again, something we are so tempted to do. We should be very, very careful when we approach God with a sense of deservedness because the only thing that we deserve in the presence of a holy God is condemnation. She doesn't come to Jesus with her merit or a list of accomplishments. Look, Jesus, here are all the things I've done for you, X, Y, and Z, all in the name of Jesus. Therefore, would you please heal my daughter? No, what does she do? She comes and she bows down and she begs for mercy. It's been said before, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Friend, you're not too broken, you're not too empty to approach Jesus. But the truth is, perhaps you may be too full of yourself. You may be too put together. 
There seems to be a pattern here in Mark that's forming specifically with those who are being healed. See, some approach Jesus flat on their backs. Remember the man that's raised or lowered down from the hole in the roof? Some sneak up down low behind Jesus and they latch on to the hem of his garment. Others kneel, others fall down, others bow. What are we seeing in this pattern here? It seems that the ones who receive the blessing from Jesus are those who know that they don't deserve it. What is the pattern that we're seeing being formed here in Mark, specifically with those who are being healed? It is people who posture themselves in humility. Listen to the words of Bernard Clairvaux. He said, it is only when humility warrants it that great graces can be obtained. Pause. What do the scriptures tell us? God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He goes on to say, and so when you perceive that you are being humiliated, look on it as the sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on the way. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before the destruction, its destruction, so it is humiliated before being honored. I'm sure many of us remember from grade school the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. Good, you were paying attention. But there's another law, another force at work within the kingdom of God that what goes down in humility will be exalted in time. What goes down in faith will be raised in grace. We see her posture. Secondly, let's note her persistence. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast uh, the demon out of her daughter. She begs Jesus. In some of your translations, it reads, she asked him continually. Now, if there's anyone that I know that understands the, the, the art of persistence, it is my children. Last night, uh, I'm on an important call, and one of my children comes to me and with a little note, and it says, can we go night swimming? We have a little community pool down the street, and so the kids are asking, can we go night swimming? And I do the, like, kind of thing right there. So what does she do? She just waits a couple minutes, and then she comes back and points at the note again. I'm like, phone call. So what does she do? She waits until I'm off, off the phone. So she comes, and she says, can we go night swimming? I'm, I'm like, I don't know. If mom wants to go night swimming, then we'll go night swimming. I re- look around in her bedroom. Michelle's like, I'm already getting ready for bed. We're not going night swimming. I'm like, okay, we're not going night swimming. What does she do again? She asks again, can we go night swimming? Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be first fed, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this enters into a very difficult place in the scriptures to navigate because it raises a ton of questions. Why did she need to keep asking Jesus? Um, Why does Jesus initially object to healing her daughter? And here's the big question. Why does it sound like Jesus just, called, Jesus just called her a dog? What makes it very difficult is that at the time, it was very common for the Jewish community to refer to Gentiles, non-Jews, as dogs, as unclean animals. And it was a time, a good time, when dogs were dogs, okay? 
not, people tried to translate this passage, and they got to understand, like, little dogs, they were little house pets. No, people, like they should today, treated dogs like dogs, not human beings, for goodness sake. Can I get an amen? I just split the church. <laughs> All right, where am I? Okay, so, so this adds a, a level of complexity, because it was a very common thing for Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. So the question is, is this intended to be a put down? Is this intended, is Jesus intending to insult this woman? And I believe the answer is no. And here's why I don't think that he's insulting her. Because we need to remember that the prominent teaching style of Jesus so far. What is the way that Jesus, so far in Mark, has been teaching? It's parabolic, meaning in parables. The seed that's sown, the soil and on and on. Is this an insult? No, this is a parable. And this is important for us to grasp here because we're going to be offended for her if we don't. Um, the parable that we're looking at here represents Jesus' mission. The parable is a story that explains a deeper truth. And what I believe Jesus is getting at is a mission that is told in parable form here, but is explained later on in Scripture explicitly by the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Roman church, in Romans chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the message of the crucified and risen Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is very important for us to understand. This gospel message, this Christ, this Messiah, to the Jews first. And then to the Gentile world, the promise that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 was that through his family, all of the families of the world would be blessed through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through that, that family group and through that nation and then to all the nations of the world. What we need to remember is that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. This was a people, a family, a a community, a nation that had been longing for generation after generation for her Messiah. The anointed one was sent to the children of Israel and then in and through Israel to the rest of the nations. Now, this has so many implications for us today. Some just some things to consider is this. Jesus wasn't white. Okay? Christianity did not begin in America. Jesus was not European. He was not American. He wasn't our Messiah. If you're non-Jewish, like, he wasn't your Messiah. In fact, Paul would go on and later on in Romans to say, no, no, we're like the wild olive shoot that was grafted into the tree contradictory to nature. You didn't fit here. Don't get all prideful and puffed up about your salvation. You didn't even belong. But by grace, he extends the welcome to us. See, this is a parable of the mission of Jesus Christ, and it's intended to test her faith and then also to invite a response. Jesus is not trying to shut her down. Jesus is drawing her in. And she catches it. She understands this. In fact, I love this. The Syrophoenician woman is the first 
person in Mark, first explicitly mentioned person in Mark, to understand the parable of Jesus without explanation. Even his own disciples, as Jesus is teaching, they're just like, yeah. And then they go away privately, and they're like, what was that all about? And yet she gets it. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't walk away upset. She understands that as a Gentile, she does not belong to the family of God. She, like you and I, have no right to assume a status as child of God. She understands that she is unworthy to sit at the table. But with this humble acceptance, she also reveals a confidence in the love and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ. She understands some things about herself, but she also understands some things about Jesus. And this understanding becomes the basis of her persistence, the character of God. And this should be the basis of our persistence. We're we're not persistent with Jesus because we believe we have something to offer. We're persistent with Jesus because we believe that he's loving and merciful and powerful to do something about it. This is the paradox of faith. I have no claim on Christ but I can have all of him I want. I do not belong here, but through faith I can belong. Jesus was rejected so that I could be accepted. You see her persistence. Finally, we see third, her profession. And I don't mean her job. I mean her profession of faith. Let me ask you a question. When you don't initially get the answer from God or ever get the answer from God that you thought you should get, what do you do? Where does your mind and heart begin to go? We question his goodness. We begin to question his character. We begin to question his promises. We begin to question his authority. Well, Jesus didn't come through the way I thought he should come through. I didn't get the answer that I thought I I should get, so clearly he must not be who he says he is. But notice, she doesn't do that. She doesn't question him at all. She does not question who Jesus is. In fact, she affirms his lordship. In fact, this is another first that we see here in Mark. She is the first person in Mark to explicitly call Jesus Lord. Neither does she give up. Look at me, verse 28. And she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, yet. What a powerful uh, configuration of three words. Yes. We always begin a response to Jesus with yes. Not no. And she acknowledges his character. She acknowledges his authority. She acknowledges his sovereignty. Yes, Lord, and yet. Yes, submission and obedience. Lord is an act of worship, yet with persistence. This is a statement of humble confidence. And look what happens in verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, what statement? Yes, Lord, yet you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter healed. Now I have to imagine she has tried everything that she can do to help her child. 
Clearly, she is a mother who is invested in the freedom and deliverance and future of her daughter. If there's anyone in the world that has fought for her freedom and fought for her healing, it's her. And yet I have to imagine the so, many, the so many times that she has faced frustration and dead ends. And yet she recognizes in this moment in the presence of Jesus that even a crumb of what Jesus brings will be enough. That a crumb of the kingdom is greater than anything the world could offer. That this is what faith recognizes in Jesus. Just even a crumb of what you offer is greater than anything that the world could ever bring in my life and my family. She says, yes, Lord, I don't deserve what you have to offer. Yes, Lord, I don't belong at your table, but even the little dogs can eat what falls off the table too because you offer abundance. Where you go, wine overflows. Where you go, bread overflows out of baskets. You bring life. You bring freedom. You bring wholeness. You bring deliverance. I'm not entitled to it, but that doesn't mean I'm not gonna ask. And in grace, he grants her request. There's an old prayer found in the, the Book of Common Worship that many saints in, in the past and present have prayed in preparation of coming to the Lord's table in times of communion. I'm going to read it now, and we'll actually pray it together later. The prayer goes like this. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table. But you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Yes, Lord, yet. So we see approaching Jesus. But let's look secondly at how Jesus approaches, how Jesus draws near. What we're going to do is we're going to transition to the second part of this story with the deaf man of the Decapolis. Look with me in verses 31 through 35. When he, returned, uh, when he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So I love this. Just as just, just a little note here. This region was previously mentioned once before earlier in Mark. This was the region where the man who was the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 is set free. And then he goes to the Decapolis and he tells them all that Jesus has done for him. So what happens when Jesus reappears? Everyone is looking for him. Verse 32, and they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Aphetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, there are a few things here that are very unique, very strange. In fact, we've probably never seen anything like this. And uh, we won't really see this anywhere else like this. But actually, if we press through kind of some of the strangeness, what I think you'll discover is this is 
the kindness of Jesus Christ being put on full display. And so let's, let's take this portion of the story and look at Jesus' approach, how Jesus approaches us. And first, if there's anything to be said here about how Jesus approaches us, it's that it is not generic. It's not detached. Jesus doesn't show up and he's just like, all right, God, just kind of bless them. Just kind of a little generic blessing on them. Now, first, it's extremely personal. Mark tells us that Jesus takes this man aside, brings him away privately. Why? Because he's meeting this man where he is. See, we can, we can only assume that this man being deaf and therefore living with a speech impediment has suffered embarrassment in some measure in his life. I, I had some children born with a tongue tied, which some believe is happening here with this person. But we live in a time where we took him into the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, just let me cut that thing. Right? I'm like, right now? And he's like, yeah, let's just cut it right now. It just cuts it and it's released. Okay, great. But we're living in a time without modern medicine. This, this is a person that's been living with this, this, this impediment and this deafness for many years. And you have to imagine it's brought embarrassment and that sort of thing. In fact, when we read about this person, we don't see a very confident man. Other parts in Mark, we see people running to get to Jesus. This man seems a little bit more reluctant. In fact, Mark tells us that people had to bring him to Jesus. He's sort of like some of us. We just kind of got dragged in here. We kind of got dragged into this whole Jesus thing. And what we see here is that Jesus is creating vulnerability. Not by publicly shaming him. Uh, He's not making a spectacle out of him. He's not saying, all right, gather around. Let me show you what I can do in this person's life. No, he takes him away privately. And taking him aside, away from the people, he brings healing. This is personal. Now, remember, he's, he's deaf. Jesus could have said, hey, listen to me. Be healed. You listening to me, man? Be healed. But instead, he first touches his ears and he touches his tongue. Now, this is weird, isn't it? This is a strange thing. What is Jesus doing? Why, why, why is he putting his fingers in his ears and then touching his... I want to know, does he latch it or just kind of touch it? What's going on here? And what's pretty clear is that he's speaking this man's language to him. He's communicating in terms that mean something to him. Jesus meets us and he speaks the language that we can understand, he's meeting this man even in a, like a primitive form of sign language. Jesus' approach in our lives is extremely personal. In fact, what we, we read here is that as he's healing him, he looks up to heaven. Jesus looks up to heaven and he lets out a sigh. When do we sigh? We sigh when we experience some form of grief or pain. He, it literally translates, he groans. He is so invested in this man's life, in this man's healing, in this man's hurt, that Jesus actually experienced the groan of his pain. Jesus meets him where he is emotionally and physically, but then he speaks healing and transformation over him. As Anne Lamott put it, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but it does not leave us where it found us. I love this because he first communicates in terms of his deafness. The first form of communication is touch. He's he's communicating in, 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 
in terms of his brokenness, but then he audibly speaks in terms of his healing. He speaks in a way that draws him out. He meets him in his brokenness, and then he draws him out. And this is the way that Jesus interacts in our lives. He meets us where we are, but he, in his grace, he does not leave us there, but he draws us out. Secondly, Jesus' approach is profound, which means going deep beneath the surface. When he touches the man's ears and his mouth, he's actually touching the areas of his pain. Quite literally, he's putting his finger on the very source of his impediment and the very source of his embarrassment. Jesus will do that. He'll place his finger on the most sensitive and painful places in our lives where there is hurt, where there's fear, where there is pain, where there is embarrassment, where there is sin. And I think for some of us, this is why we try to keep God at an arm's length. Why we, for some of us, we stay away from the community. For some of us, why we stay away from gathering weekly. Why some of us stay away from the Lord's table. From, for, why some of us you know, stay away from Christian accountability. Because we intuitively know that when Jesus moves in, he's going to move in towards those areas that we're afraid to reveal and confront. We know as Jesus approaches, he's going he's to put his finger on the place of our embarrassment, of our hurt, of our pain, and of our shame. Jesus says, be opened. And I think this is twofold because it is a pronouncement of healing, but I also believe that this is a command to be vulnerable. Jesus is essentially saying, be open to the work of God. Be open to what I want to do in your life right now. Be open to my plan of healing. Be open to to this moment where I am bringing transformation in your life despite the embarrassment, despite the shame, despite how much you want to conceal this. Be open to me. This is what Pete Scazzaro calls beneath the surface discipleship. It's the kind that seeks healing within. And this is extremely important for us as 21st century uh, Christians as we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ because as disciples, we need to understand that our past sin and our past wounds and our past scars impact our present lives. I think for some of us, we're convinced that we can just simply put our past behind us, that we can succeed in suppressing and just burying the hatchet and moving on. But much of the ways that we interact with God, much of the ways that we interact with others, much of the ways that we are even interacting with ourselves has been shaped by the painful and or shameful experiences of our lives. Whether it's the result of our own sin, whether it's the result of someone sinning against us, or like in the case of this deaf man, whether it's just simply the result of living in a world that is broken by sin. Part of the healing process Jesus brings into our lives is by leading us to intentionally identify and then by his grace and the courage that he provides to face the beneath the surface issues. This is what Jesus is doing when he touches the man's tongue. He is saying, I know. I see. I get it. Fear, shame, sinful tendencies, addictions, Triggers, unforgiveness, bitterness, 
Whatever the case may be, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, and often through the help of Christian community, will begin to place his fingers on those areas. And I would venture to say that Jesus is probably beginning that process for some of us today. Beginning to place his finger on some of those areas that we would be content to conceal, to mask, and just try to put it behind us. Jesus kindly, yet sternly, says to us this morning, be open. See, we often come to God thinking that we need to put our best foot forward, that we need to present the most cleaned up, whole, best version of ourselves. But we need to pay attention here. Because what we see is that Jesus approaches us And in his wisdom and in his grace, he reaches towards those areas of our hurt, not to to shame us, but to heal us. As Tolkien put it, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. These hands that touch are hands that heal. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings healing to the whole of our lives, and particularly those areas that are deep beneath the surface. When Jesus shines the light on our brokenness, it's very uncomfortable. We're left feeling vulnerable. We're left feeling weak. We're left feeling needy and exposed. But what we need to remember, what this passage teaches us, is that vulnerability comes before transformation. And weakness comes before strength. And neediness comes before God's provision. And exposure comes before we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's scary. But there's healing in the process. And finally, Jesus, his approach is perfect. He meets us in his perfection, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Many of us have a life verse, you know, that, that verse that just motivates us for life. We just sort of latch onto it. If we're athletes, we put it on the bottom on the sole of our tennis shoes. Or if we're a restaurant owner, we put it on the little hidden part of the cup. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Or, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So one day, uh, Michelle told me, sorry, Um, One day, Michelle tells me, I think I found my life verse. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't take you for like a life verse kind of cow. I just didn't. And so I'm curious. I'm like, okay, what is it? And in the most type A personality, Michelle way ever, she tells me this. She says, it's the passage in Mark where the people say of Jesus, he has done all things well. I'll never forget this. This was years ago. You probably don't even remember this. She doesn't. And I'm thinking to myself, that makes total sense. But all, all joking aside, I stand with her in this selection, or at least her prior selection. Not because I too think that things should be done right and orderly and excellently. But today, more than ever, I'm convinced that I need a Savior who does all things well. Uh, who meets us where we are who knows exactly how to interact with us and provides exactly what we need. We look back at Mark and we see such different interactions. The woman 
with the issue of blood, she comes up to Jesus trying to conceal her identity, and Jesus draws her out. This man right here is brought publicly, and he brings, her, brings him aside. The man doesn't even necessarily ask for help. Jesus heals. The woman asks continuously, and then Jesus heals. He does all things well. Next time that we're tempted to look at someone else's life and begin to compare, and we begin to ask God, well, why are you doing this for them, and why don't you do this for me, and why do they have this, and why is it not working out for me? We need to remember this. He has done all things well. He knows what you need. He knows what you need right now. He knows what you need tomorrow. He knows what you need next month. He knows what you need in eternity. And friend, today you need to declare with this crowd, he has done all things well. Even when it does not appear to be going well. Let me conclude with this. And this is how we can really know that he does all things well. This is the proof of his wisdom and his grace. It says in verse 34 that he looked up to the heavens and he sighed. Now, I don't believe that he is just groaning as an expression of empathy in this moment. This is not just in light of his you know, present experience of this man's pain, but I believe this is actually a prophetic groan. Jesus is groaning, he's sighing in light of the pain that is to come. See, Jesus knows that he can, he can meet this man's needs right now. He can reach out and touch his ears and touch his tongue and bring healing. But in order to bring complete and eternal healing of mind, of body, of spirit, to heal you and I completely and eternally, it's going to require him to not only reach out his hand, but to stretch out his arms. See, in Mark chapter 7, it says he looks up to heaven and he sighs. But later we read in Mark chapter 15, as Jesus is hanging on a cross, it says again he looks up to the heavens, but this time he lets out a loud cry and he breathes his last. In Mark 7, there's a sigh before the healing. At the cross, again, there's a sigh before the healing. In Christ's sigh of death, he brings about healing. He brings about life. We read, about, we read elsewhere in scriptures that it is through his wounds that we have been healed. Through his rejection, we were brought in. The big question for us today is how do we, like the Syrophoenician woman, come to Jesus, approach Jesus, and sit at his table? We read in the Gospels as Jesus hangs on the cross, looking up to heaven, sighing, he cries out the, the prayer of the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. He received being expelled from the table so that we could be welcomed in to not only receive the breadcrumbs that fall over, but to receive the banquet the abundance, the grace and generosity of God as adopted sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. 
In Isaiah 35, a prophecy that Jesus fulfills, it says, strengthen the weak hands. Listen to these words. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This announcement of good news has come to us in Jesus Christ. So that we too, like the mute and deaf man, can sing for joy. So that we too can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It was blind, but now I see. Amen.